Bring it in. Later week edition of the read option. Apologies to all the listeners for not having something out before uh, today. I know we're normally on Tuesdays, but I uh, had a long weekend, which I'll get into, and then uh, some excitement there on the drive home. Uh, I'm flying solo today. Vito, Scotty, getting some some time off. We will hopefully. Be back on Friday with some combination of myself, Vito, and Scotty. Uh, but today, we are just doing NBA. All right, this is an NBA grab bag. I reached out to some friends, uh, some people I work with, and just asked them one question. Just what, what are you looking forward to? Like, what's the most pertinent thing in the NBA right now for the rest of the season? Uh, some stuff about the all-star game so we got a grab bag we're talking nba 75 team uh lebron a whole lot of lebron zion the next disgruntled superstar Uh, we're going to talk about the final stretch like i said getting down to the end of it all-star weekend and wrap up with a little bit on the mvp before we get into that though uh i have to tell this story about coming back this weekend. So this past weekend was my dad's 60th birthday, right? So shout out to my dad, Tommy G, hitting the big six. So uh, we had a party up in Philadelphia. So I'd go up, hit up Philly, uh, see my sister, my brother-in-law, my dad, my mom on Friday. Saturday, we had a big party, went out in Philly on Friday night. It was a great weekend, all in all. Um, it also happens to be uh, one of the last times I'll be home in my like childhood house as my parents are getting ready to to move on to their next uh, stage in their life. So uh, I decide on Sunday, you know, I got to go through stuff that I want to bring back, stuff that my parents might be getting rid of. And we spend a bunch of time doing this and, and we end on, um, you know, obviously a bunch of old sentimental stuff. I have a ton of you know sports memorabilia and family stuff. I'm a nostalgic son of a bitch. So I like to hold on to stuff. I put way too much value into things. Um, But I did a good job, grabbed some stuff I knew I'd want, bring it back. But in addition to that, I also brought back some furniture. There's a nice, like, there's a nice chair. I wouldn't know exactly what to call it. It's just a chair, just a comfy kind of chair uh, for my room put in the corner. But then there's also this old bookshelf uh, that I had in my room for a long time, wanted to bring back too. So we had to take apart the chair, to take apart the bookshelf, to fit everything into my car, right? Which is just like a four-door sedan. It's nothing crazy, uh, Hyundai Sonata. But this car is like full to the brim, uh, as much as I've, I've packed it since I've had it, you know, this past year. So I'm driving down. It's about a three-hour drive to get from Philly to D.C., making great time, flying down, got about 25 minutes left of my drive, and... I'm in the far left lane of 495, it's four lane road. And all of a sudden, you know, I hear a loud bang and, you know, I'm staring at the road. I didn't hit anything, uh, but I, fa- it's one of those that immediately, you know, something, something happened. Uh, and then within about five seconds, I can feel I got a flat tire. So I'm in the far left lane of four lane highway. I have to get over four lanes. And luckily there was a little bit of a gap, but, you know, I'm going 65 on a highway here. And uh, was able to get over. Now I realize, well, my car is full. So to get to my spare tire, 
I'm going to have to stand on the side of a highway, unpack my entire car full of a broken up chair, you know, all of my childhood stuff from my bedroom, um, this bookshelf, in addition to, and there's also food in the car. There's a bunch of stuff in this car and it's packed to the absolute brim. So I'm standing on the side of 495, cars are flying by me. I'm taking all this stuff out. I have my golf clubs in the back. I'm taking everything out, get to where the spare is. I lift up the spot from the spare and there's no spare tire because I'm an idiot. And I forgot to check when we got the car a year ago, if there was a spare tire, well, there's no spare tire. So now I'm standing there realizing, okay, shit, I got to call AAA. I'm going to have to get a tow. I'm still standing on the side of the road. I had to pee for this entire time. Didn't even get a chance to do that. So I call AAA and they say, okay, you're on the side of the road. It's a dangerous spot. We're going to rush a tow truck out to you as quickly as possible. So I'm like, all right. So I'm sitting in, in the car waiting within about 45 minutes, a tow truck pulls up happy days, right? The sun had just gone down. So now it's dark and you know, cars are flying by me and it's just not a comfortable space to be. So then get out of the car, go up to talk to the tow, tow truck driver, tow truck driver comes up, shines a flashlight onto my flat tire and then turns around and says, I got a call from the cops. I have to go. A second, a second car is coming in some sort of broken English. So I said, I don't know what's going on. There's a second car. A second a guy just gets in his car and he drives away and he leaves me there just stranded on the side of 495. So then I call AAA back. Couldn't get through. I'm on hold with AAA for over an hour without being able to get through. And thank God this guardian angel never even got his name. Guy works for VDOT, which is Virginia Department of Transportation, pulls over, comes up to my window, asks if I what's going on, if I need help. I tell him what's going on. He says he works with AAA. He can give them a call and, and figure out what's going on. So he goes, he calls AAA, and AAA uh, had no warning that this guy just left. Uh, they said that they didn't even know a second tow truck needed to be picked up. I uh, needed to come pick me up. So they send somebody out there immediately. That guy shows up. He gets there within literally like five minutes of this guy setting this call. And uh, I was in- inevitably able to, to get towed all the way back to, uh, to Virginia, which was, again, I was only about 25 minutes away, got the tire replaced. Uh, and that took up the majority of my last you know 48 hours. That plays into part of why we're a little bit late here. But I'll tell you what. Have a flare in your car. Be safe if that ever happens, because sitting on the side of a row of a highway like that with cars flying by you. Holy shit. Is that scary? And if you're driving, maybe move over a lane if you see a car there, because it's not a fun place to be. Um, and uh, luckily for me, uh, everything was all right and we're safe and the car's fixed and it's happy days. We're moving on to the next thing. So I uh, just wanted to share that story because. That was that was how I started off my week. And after a wonderful weekend to have that was not a, was not ideal. But I digress. Um, let's move on here and talk some NBA hoops because we're in this weird dead period right now. Football ends. Uh, we had a little bit of college basketball news. In fact, it was like the main story around the country with this deal with Juwan Howard uh, smushing or not punching kind of punching an assistant coach for Wisconsin and all that drama and everybody freaked out about it. And, and look, I, everybody in sports media had the exact same opinion, which was 
suspended for the rest of the season. He got suspended for the rest of the regular season. No one really cares. I think at this point, it's not a good look. It's not, a, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a demerit, right? A little bit of a black mark to, to college basketball and that like the first major national story that we've heard now, what's supposed to be like prime college basketball season is this story. But you know, if that happens on Super Bowl Sunday, like, Oh, just last Sunday, a week ago, no one's even talking about it. You know, it's probably like the sixth or seventh story on ESPN, but because we are in this dead period, it was NBA all-star weekend, but now they expanded the all-star break. So it used to only be a couple of days. Now they basically get a full week. So we're not getting the NBA back. I believe until Friday, maybe, I think there might be a couple of games on Thursday. Um, so they're getting a full week now to, you know, really to get that rest and kind of get ready. But what that means as fans is that we just don't have nearly as much, um, to, you know, to, to watch, right. It's really college basketball and the NHL. That's kind of all we have, but we did have the all-star weekend. Um, and because we're in this weird kind of dead zone in sports, I thought this would be a good time to just go through the NBA because the NBA all-star weekend was a lot of fun, but there was also a lot of real NBA, NBA news that kind of came out with it. And so we're just going to kind of take this step-by-step step here and just some of my thoughts in observing how we consumed this whole weekend um, and, and everything from the all-star game, this all 75 team for the NBA, uh, as well as some serious stuff like down the road stuff with Zion. Um, and obviously we're getting ready here for the, the final stretch of uh, the regular season uh, and what is a very uh, tight uh, race, particularly in the Eastern conference, the Western conference, you know, the, the Suns have a pretty substantial lead now in first place, but Chris Paul is going to be out six to eight weeks. Golden State might be uh, priming themselves for a big run here. So uh, we'll see where ultimately it goes. But where I do want to start with is the NBA All-75 team um, and how we compare eras. Because we've actually touched on this a bunch recently, right? We, we were talking about the whole Matthew Stafford thing. Is, is Matthew Stafford a Hall of Famer? How quickly we are to have that conversation. But I've noticed that we're quick to have those types of conversations, right? Like, how does LeBron compare to MJ, right? Com this whole comparing eras and, and, and what it means and, and how stats and numbers change over time. But we also do a really bad job of it. So we're quick to judge. And we do a really bad job of it overall. And ESPN and the talking heads and Fox Sports, like they're the worst at it as much as anybody. And I get it. I work in content. I, I know that you have to find ways to talk about things. But that doesn't mean we have to just rush immediately to is Matthew Stafford a Hall of Famer or how does he compare to the other greats that we have in, in the history of the game? We can just acknowledge it like, hey, this dude just won a Super Bowl and it was really freaking cool what he did. And when the all NBA 75 team, whatever they're calling it, came out, the 75th anniversary team, first of all, there's 76 guys on a list that's supposed to be for 75 years and it's supposed to be the 75 so i think right off the bat that's a kind of a weird thing to do but we don't do a good job of of comparing the old to the new i see it all the time with the like you know tracy mcgrady would own bob cousy on one-on-one -on -one. it's like yeah no shit bob cousy played in the 50s and the 60s like it was a different sport back then and if you don't use the context in which the player played comparing him to his peers rather than his predecessors i 
you can't judge guys based off of today's standards. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Like, yes, the game itself has changed significantly, right? The, the emergence of a three-point line, how Bob Cousy was playing basketball when there wasn't a three-point line, right? So uh, right off the bat, to compare numbers and everything else, like the game has fundamentally changed. And not only did, it, did we add the three-point line, which is obviously a completely different you know, scoring dynamic, which already can, can tilt numbers one way or another, just in the last 10 years, how much we're more willing to shoot th- teams are willing to shoot threes. How many more guys are shooting threes consistently? We just watched Steph Curry make 16 three pointers in the all-star game, right? Like Steph Curry obviously helped channel and, and bring in this new era, but even the Ray Allens and, and the Reggie Millers, right? These guys who, Three-point shooting was a real asset. It wasn't just, hey, we have Steve Kerr on the outside. He's a really good three-point shooter, but he's only going to take about three or four a game. It becomes an integral part of how offense is, is created in the NBA now. So, yeah, no, like, no shit. Clay Thompson, he's significantly better if you put him in a time machine and go back. But the whole time machine argument, which is essentially what we're doing, which is that you're putting Clay Thompson in a time machine or Tracy McGrady or whoever is the, are these guys who got snubbed from this all 75 team, you're putting them in the time machine and you're comparing them against Bob Cousy. You can't do that, right? Clay Thompson grew up around NBA arenas. His dad played in the NBA for one of the greatest teams of all time, the Showtime Lakers. Clay Thompson is going to all based off of just, being around that, right, where the NBA was when he was a kid, his experience growing up in it, how early he started playing the game, how much we've learned about basketball. Like, if you look at how those guys were shooting back then, they weren't doing it by choice. They weren't doing these weird little runners and, you know, these floater jump shots and these ugly, you know, moves or even how they would ball handle. Like, they weren't doing that because they wanted to do that overshooting the way that Clay Thompson or Steph Curry or anybody else does. No, they, they were doing that because that's all they knew how to do. The game evolves and it starts at the youth level, right? Bob Cousy probably played a million different sports and basketball was just one of them. And it just happened to be the one he was best at. And so he worked on how to get better with what they knew at the time. They didn't know about the, the you know, the amount of technology and everything else. Hell, even just the way that, you work out now like kids are in especially in football or seventh eighth grade they're lifting already right and that was even like for me like i'm old enough or young enough however you want to say but like when i was in 12th or when i was 12 years old in seventh grade like we had to lift for middle school football or we didn't have to but we had the option to and a lot of guys did bob Cousy wasn't out there like lifting weights training to be an NBA player one day or to be a college basketball player one day, he was good at it. And then around the time he was in high school, yeah, he decided like, I'm good at this. I'm going to go to college for it. And then, Oh, I'm going to go to the NBA for it. We didn't have this, these training programs. We didn't have these, the investment in youth basketball. There was no AAU where you're playing against other elite players from around the country. No, you were just playing whoever you played in high school. Same thing with like a guy like Larry Bird, like Larry Bird grew up in French Lick, Indiana. Like he wasn't playing the best of the best. And it, it, it's an example of just how much the game has changed. And if you're going to compare Bob Cousy to the standards of today's NBA, then you're disrespecting Bob Cousy. 
You're disrespecting that era of basketball, which also contained guys like Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain and, and the greatest to ever do it. So when we get online and, and we make fun of like these older players, right? The Billy Cunninghams and stuff like you, you have to factor in the context from where they're from, from the era in which they played in. And you're doing a bigger disservice to the game by not recognizing those people. And this might be like an okay boomer take or whatever. I get it. But I'm a fan of the history of, of sports. And, and LeBron in earlier eras wouldn't be LeBron James now. I'm sure if you ask LeBron, hey, are you as good without having watched Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant growing up? Right. If LeBron grew up in the 70s, he still give it, you know, same physical makeup, everything, whatever. He still probably would have been an elite athlete in some sport. Maybe it's basketball, maybe it's football, maybe it's something else. And he still might have, for all we know, been one of the greatest of all time. But comparing, you know, LeBron or any of these other all time guys in, in, in the modern era to older eras, especially when you're talking about like the old, old school for Jordan versus LeBron, there's a little bit more merit to it, right? Because they only missed each other by, what, a year, two years from whenever Jordan's, you know, magic or his Wizards tenure ended. Now, of course, like peak Michael Jordan compared to LeBron is, you know, you're dealing, dealing with a seven or eight year age gap, which the game definitely changed a lot. And the game's changed a lot since LeBron entered the league. But at least that's a, that's a more fair comparison. So I get why people do that. But even still, the game's just completely different. That's why there's, there's more talent in the NBA right now than there's ever been. You know, I've heard people on, on other podcasts and other radio shows, uh, you know, make this, do this game before. But if you ask yourself, like, how many guys in the NBA could average 20 points a game if you just gave them enough shots? The answer's probably close to triple digits, if not in the triple digits. Right. You can see like Jeremy Grant's a great example, a guy who was always thought of as just a role player, but he went to Detroit because he wanted to get shots. And now he's averaging 20 points a game. Right. And he's done this now for a couple of years. And that's not to say he's like an amazing player. And I think Jeremy Grant's a good basketball player, but that's the level of talent that exists in the NBA today. And so the point toward, you know, if you go back to Bob Cousy's era, how many guys could average 20 points a game? or whatever that same bar would be, it's probably not the same amount. There's also less guys in the NBA at the time too, less teams overall. But when we go through this, we, we need to start comparing eras more like we compare music and movies, right? It, it's not that, you know, modern day, you know, punk rock is better than classic rock. They're different eras. And the later generations are inspired by that. And I think the movie comparison is even better. If you go back and watch Casablanca, which is made in like the 1930s, if you're holding it to today's standard of technology and cameras and, and uh, you know, special effects and all that stuff, then you're completely disrespecting what is a brilliant movie in Casablanca. And it goes all the way throughout. Yes, there's going to be moments where we look at terrible graphics go watch the first toy story. It looks like they're floating on the ground compared to what you see now with animated, you know, in, in not in that classic Disney animation, but in like, you know, the more 3d looking computer animated, like it, it's night and day, but 
that doesn't make Toy Story a worse movie. In fact, I think Toy Story is better than any of the, the original Toy Stories, better than any of the other Toy Story movies out there. I still think it's the best Pixar movie that they've ever made. So when we compare eras, let's not fall for the, hey, you know, Bob Cousy looks funny when he's shooting a basketball compared to the way Clay Thompson does. And then therefore, Clay Thompson should be in over Bob Cousy. Let's think of it more like we think of movies. Caddyshack is one of the greatest, funniest movies of all time. It's still arguably my favorite comedy of all time. Movie was made in 1980. If they made Caddyshack today, would it look different? Would it feel different? Even if it's the same script, same shock, just with this technology? Yeah. But it would still probably be a good movie, right? It'd probably be a different movie. Still probably be good, but it would also be different. So when we when we do this, and this goes for all sports too, just let's collectively do a better job at adding that context in when we're talking about all-time greats or this player versus this player playing in different eras. Because we do such a bad job of it as, as fans and as, as people in the media of recognizing that, hey, this is it's a different era. And it's okay for Clay Thompson to not be as good compared to his contemporaries as Bob Cousy was to his. There's no question that if time machines exist, Clay Thompson would kick the shit out of everybody who played basketball in the 1950s. And this is coming from like Clay Thompson, number one fan. Like I, everyone in the NBA loves Clay Thompson. I still think there's an argument that he should be on the top 75 team over other players. Like I would put Clay Thompson in over Damian Lillard. There's no question that when you compare those eras in that context of a time machine, yeah, no one back then could play today. You know, Bill Russell and Wilt, you know, that's probably about it. But at their time and how what they did to get the game from where it was then to what it is now, you have to give them the respect. And for people saying that those guys shouldn't be on it, you're wrong. Because you're not watching the NBA today without those guys. So give them the respect because they've earned it. LeBron was once again being LeBron. Uh, All-Star weekend in Cleveland. I think most people probably assumed that we were going to get some sort of, you know, interview, press conference, comments i'm home lebron took it to a whole nother level all right now the lakers did nothing at the trade deadline and clearly lebron was not happy about it and when you put it that way seeing okay the lakers currently in ninth or tenth in the west anthony davis is hurt russell westbrook hasn't worked out all of this stuff. You just look at where they're where they're at right now, but you still have LeBron statistically having one of his best years in a, of his entire career. And, and you say, all right, you know what, LeBron, you're right. I can understand why you would be frustrated because where you're at right now is not where you want it to be. But why are you where you're at right now? All right, you want to blame Anthony Davis? Uh, AD came in. He put on all that weight. That was bad for him. We don't have the same pick and pop game. You know, 
He was the worst jump shooter in the NBA before he got hurt. <laughs> okay. But what about Russell Westbrook? See, LeBron is the king of wanting to be in control of all times while still giving off the plausible deniability that I'm just a player. It's the GM who's making these decisions. And we say it all the time. LeBron's the GM, right? How, how many years now have we been saying this? Basically, since he left Miami to come back to Cleveland, he's been like, yeah, I'm the one calling the shots. And his track record isn't, hasn't been great, all right? The Kevin Love trade, right? He wanted Kevin Love. They force the trade, you know, draft Andrew Wiggins, trade in Minnesota. Kevin Love comes over. That was actually a pretty good call. I'll give GM LeBron that. But other than that, there has not been a whole lot that's worked out for LeBron James. After they win the title in Cleveland, LeBron wants to try and get Paul George, right, off of Indiana. Indiana didn't want to trade with Cleveland. Then word gets back to Kyrie. Kyrie's like, yo, I'm out of here. And in that year, they go out and they sign Darren Williams and D. Wade. Remember they made the trade with D. Wade? Remember when Dwayne Wade was a Cleveland Cavalier? They signed Derrick Rose to that team. Remember when Andrew Bogut was supposed to be this game changer for them, for that, those Cleveland Cavaliers teams? Remember all that? Yeah, that didn't really work out too well. Because after that year, nothing was really ever the same with Cleveland. Within a year, LeBron's not playing for the Lakers. Since he's been in L.A., they forced the mega trade for Anthony Davis. And you can say, hey, Jeff, they won a title. They won the bubble, right? It's worth it if they win the bubble. And, I, and in every sport I say that, if you're willing, if you want to trade a ton of assets, a ton of first-round picks, mortgage your future, we just talked about this with the Rams, in order to win a championship, then go out and do it. So they can say this worked, right? LeBron can say definitively it worked. We won a championship. So for those people and that thing, all right, cool. You won the championship. That's good. But that's not going to satisfy LeBron. LeBron's still chasing MJ. He's not there yet. He's close. And by the time it's all said and done, he's going to have a real case for it. But LeBron's not done being LeBron yet. And with the stats and the way he's looked this year, to his immense credit, he's been phenomenal. But where the Lakers are right now, it's because they made that Anthony Davis trade, they mortgage their future. They only have so many things they can do. And then you come up to this summer. LeBron thinks, hey, I'm going to go out and we're going to get Russell Westbrook and we're going to go out and we're going to get Carmelo Anthony and we're going to go out and get Rondo. And we're going to get all these old heads and we're all going to bring come back together and we're going to win a title. We're going to show you. Right. Remember, LeBron, all the all the talk there at the beginning. Just keep the same energy up. Just keep the same energy up. Come springtime. Here we are, LeBron. It's all star break and you guys are barely even in the play in tournament. So what are we talking about? here? All right. That Russell Westbrook trade. Is one of the worst trades we've had in the NBA in a very, very long time. And there were a lot of people that thought it would work. I was not one of those people, not for a second that I believe that this would work. 
And now they're stuck in a spot where you look back and you look at what they gave up to the Washington Wizards for Russell Westbrook, Montrez Harris, Kyle Kuzma. You couldn't then sign Alex Caruso. So Caruso goes off. He's now with the Bulls. Contavious Caldwell-Polk, an important piece of the championship team, right? That's four guys who are all plenty talented. And then you find out that for a much smaller deal, would have been Kuzma and I think one other role player, maybe Horton Tucker, you could have gotten Buddy Heald. Buddy Heald immediately makes you better than what they have with Russell Westbrook right now. But then you're also going to be able to keep a Montrez Harrell. You would have money to be able to sign Alex Caruso so he doesn't walk on you. You'd still have Contavious Caldwell-Pope. You would have a legitimate team that is analytically driven to help you succeed. Because LeBron, he, he's not at a point where he's just taking guys off the dribble. He's shooting the three better than he's ever done it before. The step-back three is ridiculous. But he's also been able to work guys in the post. And with LeBron as a passer, with AD running as your big man, you need shooting. And they did the exact opposite. And it's because LeBron wanted that. Instead now, you're staring down the two big acquisitions you had this summer, Carmelo Anthony and, uh, and Russell Westbrook. Those guys can't play in crunch time. Russell Westbrook's been getting benched in crunch time. Because he's that much of a liability. If you want to hear me talk more about it, I did a rant on it around this time last year and how nauseating it is watching Russell Westbrook play basketball, especially in the last two minutes. No shit, this didn't work. But this is the part of LeBron that drives me nuts, going back to the original point and why I'm going down this whole diatribe to begin with, is that LeBron still has this... I don't know if he tricks himself into believing this, if he genuinely believes it, or if it's all just an act, but his ability to push off any criticism and to do it in so such passive-aggressive ways in his press conference for the All-Star game. He talked about how Sam Presti is a great GM, right? Best GM. He's the MVP of the Oklahoma City Thunder at this point. You look at the guys he's drafted, Josh Giddy, right? So that's one thing. Right, maybe a little message to the Lakers: fire Palinka, hire you know, go up, spend a shitload of money, go after Sam Presti. I don't think Presti would go, given all the assets he's been collecting there. But it's also a dig at Rob Palinka because Sam Presti's been a relatively aggressive GM. Now, when he's in a team, when he's with a team of of power, right, that not of power, but a team that's succeeding, it's going after players. When it's a team that's rebuilding, he's aggressive and making sure he's picking up assets wherever he can get. The other weird thing is LeBron also shouted out Les Snead, who is the GM of the Los Angeles Rams, who, as we've talked about on this pod, was an aggressive GM, went out of his way to go all in. And LeBron's mad at the Lakers based off of this and based off of what it seems he's doing publicly, again, albeit passive-aggressively, is he saying the Lakers GM wasn't aggressive enough. Because reportedly there was a trade for John Wall that would have needed to require one extra future first-round pick. And the Lakers said, no, we don't want to do that. So he's taking shots at Rob Palenka. He's taking shots at the front office. 
You know why they couldn't be aggressive at the deadline, LeBron? By the way, you're also just outing yourself that you hate Russell Westbrook as a, as a teammate. It's because you made them go get Russell Westbrook. They couldn't make trades because of what you made them go out and get. Russell Westbrook up there with John Wall is one of the hardest, if not the hardest, contract to trade in the NBA. It's not impossible, but it's the hardest. Even just trying to make the numbers work, it's impossible to get done. Then you have to factor in the fact that nobody wants Russell Westbrook on their team. Unless it's a team that's trying to lose games, like the Wizards last year, which, albeit they did make a run and try to get in, and they weren't intentionally trying to lose, but it was more of a shot in the dark. But the Houston Rockets are about the only team. And even so, that would have been terrible for Jalen Green's, you know, overall upbringing now in the NBA. His development would absolutely be hindered by having Russell Westbrook there. At least with, when it's John Wall, John Wall's not even playing. He's just chilling off to the side. Who, who knows what John Wall's doing? So you think this guy who wouldn't, hasn't played all year would just show up for the Lakers and be better than Russell Westbrook? That's probably true. But if you're Rob Palinka, you don't know if LeBron's coming back. You don't know how long LeBron's going to be there. And we're talking about a pick that's coming five years down the line, 2027. I don't blame Rob Palinka for not wanting to trade another first-round pick after they got completely swiped of them from the Anthony Davis trade. And then they had to trade all of the players that they did have who helped win a championship to Washington for Russell Westbrook. And now you have this contract that you can't trade. And LeBron's now giving you shit passive-aggressively at All-Star Weekland in his hometown because of something that he wanted the Lakers to do in the first place. And I know I'm not the only one saying this, but what's crazy is LeBron has developed this ridiculous facade that when he speaks to the media, he's still like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just a player at the front office. You know, he's deflecting everything off of him as if he's not the most powerful person in the NBA, but he is. He's by far the most powerful person in the NBA. And yet, when it comes to deals like this, when it comes to, hey, why can't, he's mad at something that he helped create but is somehow convinced himself that it's the front office's fault because they're the ones that, I guess, executed the trade. But again, the trade doesn't happen without LeBron wanting it in the first place. So there is absolutely zero accountability. And that's the thing with LeBron that I will never, ever, ever be on board with as a basketball, from a basketball part. It is, it's, there's zero accountability. It's never on LeBron. It's never on LeBron. It's always outward factors. And this doesn't diminish his greatness. This doesn't diminish what he's been doing this year. But because he is a, still a player, he's able to somehow separate himself. He's able to separate himself from the outside, which is mind-blowing to me. You're LeBron James. When your teams are built well, you usually have a hand in making it happen. And you'll take the credit for the big three in Miami. And you'll take the credit for bringing a championship to Cleveland. And you will damn sure take the credit for winning in the bubble and what he calls the hardest championship in NBA history. But when it's Russell Westbrook imploding on the team that when you brought him in, it's the front office's fault. And not only is it the front office's fault, I'm going to go out and compliment 
the GM of the Super Bowl winning LA Rams because they were an aggressive front office. And I'm going to go celebrate Sam Presti and the job he's done drafting all of these stars and, tr- and building teams. Oh, and I'm also going to flirt with the idea of maybe coming back to Cleveland. If you missed that, he said, you know, never say never, right? Not closing the window entirely on LeBron potentially coming back. Oh, and then he says, I'm going to play with my son. Basically saying, hey, my son, wherever he gets drafted, I'm coming too. So be ready for it. He said, it's not about money. So yeah, you're going to get LeBron at 40 on a, on a, you know, minimum veteran salary contract, right? Pay him a million dollars, whatever it is, we can go play with his son. That's not an incentive. I mean, it's nepotism at its finest. And you know what? I don't even blame him for that. I think it would be cool to see LeBron play with his son. But I also don't know if his son's ever going to play in the NBA. Well, he probably will because he's LeBron's son. But I don't know if he's good enough to. He already got dropped from a five-star to a four-star. He's like the fourth best player at Sierra Canyon. Canyon. So does he get in only because it's LeBron? Is he, is he going to go to the Cavs? Is he going to go somewhere and then demand that team draft Bronny? Is he going to force Bronny out of college early when he may not be ready because he wants to play with him and then Bronny's career could get completely soiled from it? I don't know. Like, these are all realistic outcomes, but this is the insanity of LeBron is that he dropped all of these in a row in one press conference in Cleveland. While all the while his team is struggling, And he's taking zero accountability for it. He says one or two things a year about how we're not playing up to our standard. We need to be better. We need to do this. But because he's a player, he's given himself that plausible deniability that, hey, I'm just a player. I'm not pulling, you know, all the strings back here. Yes, you are, LeBron. That's what you do. That's that's how this works. You're the most powerful person in the NBA. You chose Russell Westbrook. And then you went out and you basically passive aggressively shit on your current front office for making a trade that you wanted to make happen and then not being able to trade, make a trade to make the team better because they couldn't trade the guy that you wanted there. Oh, and now Russell Westbrook's going to hate your ass. So LeBron went full LeBron. He's having an unbelievable year. He hit the game winner in the all-star game. He's an insane person to, to try to break down. He really is. And there's, uh, you know, some interesting theories about Brady retiring, right? Brady was always the ultimate chip on his shoulder guy where Tom Brady drafted 199, didn't deserve the Giants loss, right? It was one after another and after another. Now it's just so universally recognized that he's the GOAT that he maybe has lost some of that chip on his shoulder, and that might have been part of why he retired. It's just a theory. I don't know. But if it's true and you think about that compared to LeBron, like I think what Tom, I think that with Tom Brady is rational. It makes a lot of sense, actually. But then when I think of the same thing in the context of LeBron and how is LeBron getting to this point, I think LeBron just believes his own bullshit. I think Tom Brady might have actually been self-aware enough to be like, hey, you know what? I think I need to step away from the game. Like, I think I've, I've done all I can do. And we still don't even know. Maybe he's waiting for another chip. But I think LeBron has hit a point now where he has all, he's had all these chips, but, like, he just kind of believes his own bullshit. 
Like, I, I really do believe at this point, LeBron thinks that the front office of the Lakers did him wrong. I think that's a possibility. I don't know if that's true. Because it's impossible for him to take any sort of accountability. And for as amazing as he is on an NBA basketball court, and for as amazing as he's been in the community as a philanthropist, which is something I've always admired and adored about LeBron, the ego and the lack of accountability, it's something that's always going to drive me nuts. Something that's always going to drive me nuts. And it's one of those reasons why even it's not the main reason, it's not the only differentiator, but it's one of the things that I, I will always have Jordan ahead of him because of. Jordan just went out and played. He didn't make mis- he you know, he didn't blame other people when they failed. Maybe one or two times. But when he lost, when some when, when he was losing, it was always just somebody gets him, someone beats on the move, whatever. It's like, I'm coming after your ass. And I would say Kobe was the same way. Kobe and Shaq had a ton of drama, but they didn't blame each other for losing because they were so good together. LeBron has this massive ego, which, hey, for if you're the face of basketball for 20 years and you were anointed the great one at 18 and all the, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you actually become one of the greatest top two players of all time. I get why somebody's ego would blow up with that, but I just think we're, we might be at a point where LeBron actually just buys into his own bullshit and legitimately believes that Rob Palenka did him dirty at the trade deadline without taking a second to go like, Hey, uh, we're kind of in this mess because of me. And maybe behind closed doors he is. But based off of what he said publicly this weekend, I have a really, really hard time believing that. There's always another disgruntled superstar. Always. In this era of NBA basketball, every time there's a trade, Every time a superstar is unhappy and finally gets to move on, you can set your watch. Set your watch to about two weeks. Ben Simmons, James Harden, they get traded. Well, then who's next? Who's next up? And there's always candidates, right? For a long time, it's been Bradley Beal, right? Is Bradley Beal unhappy? Damian Lillard seems to have been on that hot seat for a while. But they just traded CJ McCollum because it seems like Portland wants to rebuild the team around Dame. So, all right, maybe Dame stays. Bradley Beal, he's getting a Supermax this summer. He's going to get that contract. And then maybe, maybe he'll end up asking out at some point, right? Secure the bag. We just saw Ben Simmons do it. Or maybe he'll stay in Washington, put up buckets, make a couple all-star games, and he'll be good until maybe later in his career he gets traded. Donovan Mitchell's been a name. That seemingly jumped off recently, right? If this year doesn't go good for Utah, what does Donovan Mitchell want to do? He hasn't always loved the Rudy Gobert, you know, combination. They've been a one seed. They've kind of disappointed. They're very similar to Philly in that regard, right? Been disappointing in the playoffs. Haven't made the Western Conference Finals yet, but they've been one of those teams that's been in the mix now for four or five years. Is this going to be the breaking point if this year looks to be the same, right? And they're even more banged up. No Joe Ingles. They traded him at the uh, deadline for Walker Alexander, which uh, or Nikhil Walker-Alexander, I should say. Maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. You know, Nikhil Walker-Alexander's 
been a decent player in his career, but he's always kind of been limited. We will see ultimately what comes of Donovan Mitchell. But if you followed the NBA this week, you'll see that Zion has actually seemed to be the name that's popped up the most. Now, we haven't seen Zion this year. He was spectacular last year. Watching him play set the record for Perth 36, which is saying a lot because that stat is usually juiced. He was a wrecking ball, man. Flew all around the court. And that was with Stan Van Gundy, who was a horrible coaching hire on their part. This is Zion's third year. He missed most of his first season with injury. We got a couple glimpses. And when he was in, it looked special. And then last year, we actually got, in, we got enough. We got almost not a full season, but we got a lot of games. I don't know the exact number, but enough to get him in the All-Star game. And we're like, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. It was immediate. He comes in. He's brilliant. But there's all the talk about the weight. Talking about his, the way he runs, that kind of goofy, stiff running style. But yet it was still so brilliant and explosive and exciting. He was one of, if not the most entertaining basketball player to watch last year. And then it's, all right, well, he's got this foot injury and he's a little bit out of shape, but he'll be, we'll, we'll get him back. All right, he'll be back. He'll be back, you know, month into the season. Month into the season, gets pushed back a little bit more. Get pushed back. Then, I don't know, about maybe a month ago, they say it's not likely that we'll see Zion at all this year which is pretty shocking, right? Because I understand, like, Liz Frank, there's some other stuff going on with his foot, with his, with his weight and, and everything. You really want to make sure he stays healthy. I get it all. But he's been seeking and, and working with an independent doctor. He's been not with the Pelicans front office or, or Pelicans health staff. He's been working with a doctor from Georgia Tech. Well, the New Orleans Pelicans sent out their uh, season ticket offer, right? First one for next year, for the 2022-2023 season. And there was zero mention of Zion Williamson. It was like with Lee, with our GM, David Griffin, our head coach, Willie Green, Brandon Ingram, and CJ McCollum, you know, we're excited to offer you packages here for our season tickets for the 2022-2023 season. Which, if you're familiar with uh, – pretty much how those things work um, not having Zion on that list is a pretty eye-opening thing and it might seem dumb and small but I worked or sorry my you know degree in college was sports management right which is the business side of, of sports so we used to talk about things like this the amount of detail and attention that goes into setting up plans like that when it comes to like hey what is our our message as a team, what are we promoting? That's something that takes a long time to, to cultivate, to put together. And it's very specific. So Zion not being on that, not being on that promotional email is intentional. And it's the first time, because we've heard rumblings over the last year that Zion may not be stoked about being in New Orleans. But this is the first time that New Orleans has acknowledged anything as an organization. The fact that Zion is not mentioned in there is something. I don't know how big of a deal. I don't know if it's the end of the end, but it's not a good sign. CJ McCollum gets traded from Portland to New Orleans, right? Because they're 
seemingly trying to put pieces around Zion. They're trying to be like, hey, Zion, you're the face of our franchise, right? Remember the celebration of, of the front office when Zion got drafted? It went super viral, and everyone threw their papers up when they saw, like, oh, my God, we got the number one overall pick because Zion was literally going to be one of the next great ones, and the fact that he was going to a small market team was a huge deal, especially after New Orleans had just lost Anthony Davis or was about to lose. Anthony Davis. That was a that was a big deal. It changed. It changed everything for that franchise. But it doesn't really seem like Zion's ever had much interest in being a Pelican. Which is crazy to me. Because Zion at Duke was so lovable, not just because of how unbelievably explosive. The, the jaw-dropping dunks, he literally busted through a shoe. He was so strong. It wasn't any of that. that it, 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 I mean, don't get me wrong, that stuff made him popular and, and famous. But what I think made him lovable was like he just wanted to play basketball. You know, when he, when he did blow out his shoe and he hurt his ankle, people were asking him like, hey, why, why aren't you sitting out the rest of the season? Like you can just sit out the rest of the season and get ready. You're already have done enough to be the number one overall pick. And Zion was just like, because I want to go play North Carolina as a, as a member of the Duke Blue Devils. I want to go try to win a national championship. Like the basketball seemed to mean something to him. Which is why all of this stuff with the Pelicans and the front office, and now we're, like I said, we finally saw some sort of acknowledgement from the Pelicans side. And then when C.J. McCollum gets traded, Zion doesn't call C.J. McCollum to welcome him to the team. Doesn't send him a text, doesn't reach out at all. That doesn't seem like the same guy that we saw at Duke. And it's only been a couple of years. So where did this disconnect come from? Well, there's a lot of people who say it's, you know, his stepdad and his mom play a huge role into it. Maybe. Maybe it's the health thing, right? Maybe it's mental health related. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But the thing that I didn't hear mentioned much about the CJ McCollum story and why him not reaching out is, is not only a big deal because it's like, hey, like, that's your teammate. Like, he's your teammate now, and he's not just teammate. He's a damn good player, borderline all-star. Like, you got to reach out to your, your guys when they get traded. And not just like CJ McCollum level, but like anybody who comes onto your team, it's important to do that. But people have forgotten that C.J. McCollum's also the president of the Players Association. <laughs> like, it's not like he doesn't know who he is. It's not like he couldn't get his phone number. It shows that Zion is really detached from this team. And I'm using that word detached because that's exactly what J.J. Redick said. J.J. Redick got traded to or uh, signed in New Orleans right before getting traded. And he was around that team for a year and a half. And J.J. Redick said it publicly on first take, and he used that word detached. That is not a good thing. And there's been a lot of talk about, you know, especially when, before like when Ben Simmons did this thing, it was like, hey, dude, you have no leverage. But he also had just signed an extension, and he still wanted out. And we kept going to this, all right, well, is player empowerment getting to a point where players can ask out without, you know, like with this, with no leverage, basically. Everybody, every player in the NBA who 
is in that level, in that tier, right, of all-star caliber tier, if they want to move on, if they want to demand a trade, most of them try to at least get that first contract, right? Get the first extension off of your rookie deal because that's you're with your first team. They can offer you a super max. You're going to get a lot of money off of it. And then at some point in that contract, you, you ask out. What it feels like here with New Orleans is that Zion is going to ask for a trade before getting off of his rookie contract, which is incredibly rare. Not only on rare, it's unprecedented. And he might be sacrificing a good chunk of change. But nobody knows what kind of shape he's in. There's been reports that he's up to 280, 300 pounds. Even if he's at 260, that's too much for his frame. Especially given, you know, his injury history already. I hope Zion decides to wait it out and to give a shot. Because I think the Pelicans fans deserve that. But I'll tell you this, Zion in this weekend alone went from, in most people's eyes, being this exciting young player into this guy's kind of, kind of being an asshole. And it may not even be him. It might be his camp, might be his agent, might be his stepmom or his stepdad and his mom. I don't, I don't know where this is coming from. There's reports all over the place. And I think that's what makes it so interesting is that nobody really seems to know. It's a little kawaii-ish where there doesn't really seem to be anybody in his camp that's openly talking about this. But there's stuff going on behind the scenes. And if you remember, it was Kawhi's uncle that was kind of doing the same thing. And I'm getting similar vibes to that. It's a story to monitor moving forward. But again, every time there's a trade, a big blockbuster trade, James Harden to Philly, Ben Simmons, right? Set your clocks for a week, two weeks. Because immediately more rumblings start coming. And then usually within six months, another superstar gets traded. So we'll see if it's Zion or might be somebody else. But I think right now the leader in the clubhouse is Zion Williamson. All right, wrapping up the pod here, we're going to go through three last things in relation to the NBA. Like I said, it's going to be NBA-centric pod because I think right now with this weird gap, like I talked to before, the NBA just seems to be the most pressed. Like I said, talk to Ron Howard, Aaron Rodgers, all that stuff. We'll get into some of that stuff on Friday. Probably not the Ron Howard stuff. But for today, we're still rocking with the NBA. Uh, We're going to go through the final stretch first what we have to look forward to and what are the biggest storylines, things to pay attention to as we wrap up uh, the 2022-21-22 regular season. We'll start out West. So Suns are in first place comfortably. They got a six-game lead over Golden State. However, Chris Paul, who played in the All-Star game after they announced he would be out six to eight weeks, which is really weird, and I still haven't heard a clear explanation as to why. I think he just wanted to and he obviously didn't play a ton but it was a weird look uh with cp3 out i think the biggest question in the west is can golden state close that gap enough to take over first place and 
for Golden State, it's more important than you think, right? Because if for some reason Golden State, Memphis, they tie, even though they have split the series so far, uh, the tiebreaker in the NBA is goes down to your division records, right? If one's a division champ and the other's not, uh, which Golden State would not unless they overtake Phoenix, which they can do, but still might be tough because Devin Booker is really, really good. And Devin Booker can, I think, go back to the way it was, you know, before Chris Paul when he was younger, where he was kind of the point guard and kind of the main scorer. Uh, we'll get a, little, a lot more Devin Booker here down the final stretch. But Golden State has, you know, six games to catch up and they have to, and they've also had their own struggles here, getting used to having Clay back in the lineup and everyone kind of readjusting to their new positions. And obviously, Steph has cooled off a little bit since what he did in the start of the first season. However, going back to the wide division stuff ranks, right? Number three is Memphis, who's only about a game and a half behind Golden State. So if Memphis were to catch up, they were to tie, Memphis gets the two seed, Golden State would get the three seed. So there is a lot for Golden State to play for, and I really, really, really believe them getting a one seed is imperative to them making the NBA Finals. But with Chris Paul, it's inarguable that the Phoenix Suns are the best team in the NBA. And it's both conferences. It's not close. But Chris Paul is so important to what it is that makes Phoenix great. Now, the hope is, like I said, Devin Booker does enough to help carry you to that point. But if Golden State finds a way to gel all this together, and Clay has had his spots where he's looked great, but Got to remember, he still, he didn't play NBA basketball for two years. Two and a half years, honestly. That is really difficult to just come in and immediately get used to it. And yet he's done a pretty remarkable job, all things considered. <laughs> that first game back, he was incredible. We will get more of Clay, and I do believe that Golden State has enough to here to kind of get a push ready for. And they're also still waiting on James Wiseman to come back, which just to have another body behind Kevon Looney, because after, you know, Kevon Looney, they really don't have another big. You know, James Wiseman is all of seven feet. You know, he, he is a big guy. Even if he fouls a little bit, he can obviously do some things offensively, but it's a huge body, which when you're going up against DeAndre Ayton and guys like that, it, it can be really, really useful. However, Golden State does have, a pretty difficult remaining schedule um, and, and Phoenix a little bit more difficult. Uh, I mean, both teams, you know, are going to have tough games here down the stretch, but one team is fully loaded, just trying to figure out all the pieces. The other team is missing arguably their best player. Uh, not even arguably Chris Paul is the best player from Phoenix. The dark horse there is Phoenix. Now for Phoenix to jump from eight and a half back all the way up to first place, would be a hell of a jump, especially considering that this team is so young. But that kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk about here with the Western Conference, which is how legit is Memphis, right? Because we say this all the time with young teams, right? Oh, they don't have the experience, you know? Yeah, like they're talented, they're young, they're this upstart team, but they're, they're going to have to go through some trials and tribulations, you know, in the playoffs and going through playoff series. And, and so far, you know, We've only seen one playoff win with Ja, unless you count the play-in games, which I think we should personally because they did knock off Golden State in the play-in tournament uh, and got to play the Utah Jazz, and they stole that first game. But then, you know, the Jazz swept them after that. It was a, the, the gentleman's sweep, right? They go down 0-1 and then win four straight. 
So one playoff win with this unit, uh, but they did have the play in games and we don't know. And I get it. And I don't think it should be a, Hey, we have to discredit them because they haven't won it. I think it's rather, we just haven't seen them do it yet. So I'm not going to bank on it that they can be, we see guys who've won in the playoffs lose every single year. Like that's not a new thing. So how much does that really matter? The Phoenix Sun showed us last year that it doesn't really matter much at all. I mean, think about it, right? If you are the Phoenix Sun, like just take go back last year. Phoenix Suns, Mikhail Bridges, never in the playoffs. Devin Booker, never been in the playoffs. DeAndre Ayton, never in the playoffs. Chris Paul, never made it past the Western – had never been to the Western Conference Finals. Had never made it past the Western Conference Semifinals. So, yeah, Chris Paul has a lot of experience, but he had never played in the Western Conference Finals let alone win the Western Conference Finals. He had never won – or sorry, he had been to the Western Conference Finals, but they had never made it to the Finals. He did with the, that one time when he was with James Harden in, in Houston. But still, small sample size. So, yes, he had playoff experience, but he had never played in the NBA Finals, and they still went up 2-0 in the NBA Finals before, you know, Milwaukee came charging back and win four straight. So, Phoenix has just about as much experience – had just as much experience as – Memphis does this year. Now, Memphis, no, they don't have a Chris Paul. They don't have a guy who even has played in the big games that Chris Paul has played in. So I get that, yes, technically, Phoenix did have more experience at that point. But we also just saw this in the NFL with Joe Burrow, right? Cincinnati all year. Oh, they're a fun story. Oh, look at that, man. They won the, they beat the Raiders. They're still in the playoffs. Fun. Oh, wow. They, you know, they just kept winning. Oh, they beat the Titans okay dang they're in the western Com- or the afc championship game oh my god they just beat kansas city and now all of a sudden the cincinnati Bengals are in the super bowl and oh my god it's the fourth quarter and the Bengals are winning <laughs> there's two minutes left in the game and the Bengals are winning the super bowl and then ultimately you know they don't but the point is is that sometimes we're too quick to discount young teams just because we haven't seen it before so let's look at rather what are the memphis grizzlies well they're the number one offensive rebounding team in basketball They're one of the best defensive teams uh, in in the NBA, especially when you look at their, and it's interesting because if you look at their arc, right, they were one of the worst in the NBA defensively until John Morant got hurt. And then all of a sudden they, something clicked, right? And then when John came back after a few weeks, everyone thought, oh man, like, is this going to hurt their defense? Is John a negative on defense? No, they just continue to get better. It's just the team clicked defensively. And now they're one of the best defensive units in the game. They have good shooting. They have experience, right? They have a big uh, New Zealand freak there in, in Stephen Adams. But they also had, you know, this unbelievable, high-flying, body control, ridiculous athlete in John Morant, who's not just Derek Rose, who is this highlight machine dunking the ball at point guard, this ridiculous athlete. Same thing with Russell Westbrook. He has all of these paces, right? He can play, he, he's like a, like a manual car, right? You can put it in first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear. Like he, he can navigate and control all of that, which is incredibly hard to do. And usually it takes players a long time to kind of develop, but he can play at all of these different speeds already. And his top tier is arguably better than any other point guard in the NBA. I mean, that 360 you know, alley-oop that he, that he caught in the All-Star game was ridiculous. He's a great passer. He's now shooting the ball about 36% from three. So 
He keeps you honest. He's right around that league average. He can get to the rack when he wants to. They got this Dylan Brooks guy. They have this tough, gritty personality. I love this, this Memphis team. And I'll tell you now, if they draw the three seed, I wouldn't be shocked to see them in the Western Conference Finals. I would be a little bit shocked to see them make it all the way to the NBA Finals, but a lot of that's going to come down to what happens with Chris Paul. If Chris Paul's healthy by the time the playoffs start, I'm, I'm taking Phoenix to come out of the West. But if he's a little banged up, maybe he re-injures it, right? I do think it's good for Chris Paul that he's getting rest now. So his legs, his body, he's going to have legs for when the playoffs come and it's his thumb. So he can still work out and do some cardio, but he's going to get to rest up. So hopefully by the time the playoffs come, come around, he's in like perfect conditioning. And ideally the first round will be a relatively easy matchup for them. But Chris Paul is going to be in a position here to help lead that team to a championship and, and hopefully redeem themselves from last year if he can stay healthy. But if he doesn't, Golden State, Memphis, either one of them can, can jump in and, and steal it. I, I firmly, firmly believe that. And then whoever they you know match up against in the Eastern Conference. Uh, and on that, again, continuing this theme, the next part of this that I want to get into here as we wrap up kind of where we're at in the West, because look, the, the middle tier teams in the West, your, your Minnesotas and, and even Utah, right? Those teams are, are fine. None of them are going to win. And, and, and I'm not trying to disrespect those teams. It's just they're not relevant right now. Uh, they might have – they might put together, you know, decent runs. They might win. Obviously, some of them are going to have to win. But Utah, Dallas, Denver – I mean, I get it, right? Like, that's four, five, six right now in the Western Conference – Luca can never count him out. Jokic can never count him out. Uh, same Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, but like the Timberwolves, the Clippers, Portland, you know, those teams aren't just carrying a lot of weight as we speak. Um, but this last team, even though I just dogged on LeBron for, you know, 20 minutes, is the Lakers. Because even with all the shit with the Lakers, if they're in a seven game series, and LeBron James and Anthony Davis are both healthy. I'm not saying I'm going to pick them, but it would be really dumb to count them out. It's LeBron James. Right now, they're the nine seed in the Western Conference. If they get in, if they get past the play-in tournament, they get in, how can anybody count out LeBron and Anthony Davis together? I mean, LeBron single-handedly beat, I think it was Utah, right before the All-Star break. Like, single-handedly, fourth quarter, took the game over completely. I don't know how many of those games he has left in him, but we've been able to see LeBron do that. Could he do it for a whole playoff run? No, probably not. Would he need some help? Would he need Anthony Davis to go off for a couple of 40-point games? Absolutely. But the Lakers seven-game series, if it's LeBron, it's the playoffs, he's healthy, and he's got AD. Denver, I probably am leaning Denver, but I'm not shocked if the Lakers win that. Dallas, I know Luke is incredible, but I still think I would take the LeBron and Anthony Davis. Utah, I, I know how bad the Lakers have been, but it's just this, are you going to doubt LeBron? 
I was going back and watching highlights from the 2015, 2016 season. And uh, last night on YouTube, that season was so good. And LeBron's fadeaway when he was in Cleveland, the fadeaway three-point bank against Washington to win the game at the buzzer, I just laughed. I'm sitting in the in my room by myself watching this, and I'm laughing out loud at just because it's so it was so ridiculous. And the way we've seen him carry teams, we the LeBron stands are right when when they bring up some of the playoff stuff with him because he did carry a lot of teams. And because they won, it was all LeBron. If they lose those, you know, we can imagine how that would go. And that's still valid. Both can be true. LeBron can be that amazing, but also be that much of a douche if they lose. Um, I am not going to take the Lakers in most series, right? Because of what Russell Westbrook. I think Russell Westbrook actively hurts them as a team. But if he's not playing in the final two minutes, and some other guys step up, and it's the LeBron and AD show, I just have a hard time not thinking that LeBron and AD, right? It's almost a mental switch. It's like I've seen them do it for so long. They're so good. How – it's the same thing with Brady. Like you never see the end of these great players coming because they've shown it to you time after time after time. And so I'm just not ready to hang up on, on LeBron yet. Yet is a very, very key term there. Um, Eastern Conference. The first and most pressing issue is just going to be how how long does it take for the Sixers and Nets to get acclimated with this new roster, right? Brooklyn is currently in the eight seed. Uh, they are, let's see here, four and a half games behind the Sixers. They're seven games back from uh, first place. The difference from seven to one in the Eastern Conference is five games. So this, this whole conference is anybody's game. Sixers, Bucks, and uh, Cavs are all two and a half games behind Miami and Chicago, who are tied in first place. Miami, as it stands right now, has the tiebreaker over Chicago. By far, the biggest storyline is what happens with those two teams, Brooklyn and Philly. Because we're talking about an MVP candidate in Joel Embiid, who is really the driving force of this team and has gotten them to a point where, hey, the Sixers are 35 and 23, two and a half games out of first place. They've played all in all pretty well this year, right? You know, all things considered. And now the entire dynamic of that team is going to change. I think Embiid and Harden are good enough to play off of each other. And I think eventually it's going to work, but they don't have a ton of time. Now, the one advantage I think Philly has over Brooklyn is that Brooklyn's changing more pieces and Kyrie is still in and out of the lineup every other game because of the vaccination stuff. But they're adding Seth Curry and Andre Drummond, and Andre Drummond is going to have to fit in. And Seth, Seth Curry, I think, blends in as easily as any player in the NBA. But it's still going to take a little bit of time to develop with that. We still don't know what's going on with Kevin Durant. We don't have a firm timeline on him. We also don't – I mean, this is now the second pretty major injury Katie's had this season. And if he's not fully healthy in the playoffs – one slip up, one thing, one tweak, he could be out for a series. And all of a sudden that Brooklyn team feels really, really beatable. And we also have no idea what we're expecting out of Ben Simmons. I do believe that in the long run that Brooklyn and Ben Simmons is going to work out. I, I do think that. But in the short term, I mean, it's not days, right? Ramona Shelburne came out. It's not going to be days or, or you know, a week 
until we see Ben Simmons after the All-Star break. It could be weeks, which means come playoff time, I mean, they may only have, what, 10, 12 games under their belt with Ben Simmons playing, and he hasn't played all year. He hasn't been on a court since Game 7 against Atlanta last year. So what version of Ben Simmons do we see? We have no idea. He could come out with like a man with his head on fire, you know, rested, everything. But it's going to take some time for him and his body and his brain and everything to get readjusted to that speed. And it's also going to be in a completely different role because he handled the ball a ton for Philly. He would even bring it up in half-court offense. He's not going to be touching the ball unless it's like fast break, transition stuff. He's, he's not. There's, they just signed Goran Dragic. He's taking the ball out of Simmons' hands. Uh, Seth Curry's going to take the ball out of Simmons' hands a little bit. Obviously, Kyrie and KD are both. That's four ball handlers who are all going to be taking the ball away from Ben Simmons because they're just going to ask Ben Simmons to screen and roll, play great defense, and then maybe push some stuff in transition to make it easy on him. But that's not what he's done in his entire basketball life. He's never not been a point guard or a point forward. And so it's going to be a completely different role for him. Whereas in Philly, the rest of that team, you know, they have cohesion there, right? I know they just lost Seth, but Tobias Harris, Matisse Thibel, uh, Firkin Korkmaz, Tyrese Maxey, all these guys have at least had a couple of years together. And, and obviously Embiid being the big one and James Harden's going to come in. And, and I think when he wants to be the chameleon, James Harden is, is as good as anybody at being able to blend in kind of like Seth Curry, because he is that smart of a basketball player. And he, he did it immediately when he first got to Brooklyn last year before everything kind of fell to shit. And he had to kind of take over being James Harden again. But there's never been a team in NBA history ever to have a midseason trade of an all-star superstar type player that went on to win a title ever. Midseason trades for a superstar to win a title. Uh-uh. Never happened. So to say that either of these teams is the favorite right now would be betting on something that has not happened before and would be unprecedented by an NBA standards. Obviously, as a Sixers fan, I hope that this does happen for Philly. But I don't think it. I don't think it will. I think it's going to take time because there's just not enough games left in the regular season. Right, we're 58 games in. So we got 25 to go down the stretch here. 24, something like that. Is 24 games going to be enough to all of a sudden create a championship team where it's not just hey we have the pieces? It's how do all the pieces work? I don't know. I think that's a really big if. But it's definitely going to be the most focused on thing here in the second, second half, but last part of the season. A uh, couple other things here with the Eastern Conference. Miami is really dangerous. And I get it. Kyle Lowry's old. Jimmy Butler's old. They're sitting on top the Eastern Conference right now. But it's neither of those two guys. I mean, Tyler Hero also having, you know, coming back off the sophomore slump is huge. The absolute biggest difference maker about this Miami Heat team and, and why I'm high on Miami is Bam out of bio because every single one of these teams that are going to be in contention in the Eastern Conference right uh, even like Boston who's really heated up Boston might be the one team that doesn't fit from this but you look at you know Philadelphia you look at Brooklyn you think of uh, Milwaukee right those three and then maybe you can put Boston there a little bit too but who are, the, who are the guys you're most worried about on those teams? It's Kevin Durant, Joel Embiid, and it's Giannis. 
there's only one dude really in the NBA who I think can check all three of them and at least slow them down to an extent, and it's Bam Adebayo. All right, Bam Adebayo is 6'11", right, long, freakishly long. He's a center forward, not really sure what he is, incredible athlete, really, really good defensive player. He can guard all three of those guys. Again, not going to stop him, but he can slow them down. And to have one guy who can do that, it makes you really versatile because Miami doesn't have to be as concerned about who, what their path to the playoff, to the NBA finals would be, even if they're one or two seed, because they know that they can match up well against pretty much any other team that's coming up. Now, Boston might be a little tricky because they have their two wings that are the stars there. So, you know, would you put Bam out of bio on, uh, you know, Jason Tatum? Probably not, but if it came down to it, you know, I, I wouldn't hate it. I do think Bam is that good of a defensive player. Uh, you know, Simmons is really the only one who can cross that bridge between forwards and a little bit on centers, but Bam's better against centers than Ben Simmons is against centers. It's just Simmons can kind of do that. Um, Bam out of bio is the secret sauce there for me. You know, you have Tyler Hero, who's been phenomenal off the bench. Uh, Duncan Robinson, one of the best three-point shooters in the NBA. Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry, and the most underrated part is a really, really good coach. Because we don't talk about coaching the NBA that much, even though it really does matter. Um, because there's really only a handful of great coaches, and then everyone else is kind of like hitting in that middle tier, um, or they're obviously really, really bad, like you know Stan Van Gundy. Having a guy like Eric Spolstra in that culture, and everyone else, everyone buys into it. When you are one of the teams that has one of the true few elite coaches, it makes an enormous difference. And you think of like Nick Nurse in Toronto. Uh, Eric Spolstra in Miami, um, Monty Williams in Phoenix. I think Steve Kerr's in that conversation. Like those are the kinds of guys here that we're, that we're talking about. And I think Miami's just going to continue to be a really, really dangerous team. Uh, and, and the age thing is a part of it, right? Can Kyle Lowry do it for four more, you know, four rounds? He's 38. Jimmy Butler, you know, we saw them in the finals against in the bubble, but We've never seen him do it outside of the bubble, which isn't necessarily fair to hold against him, but it's at least something to bring up. Uh, and the last two little quick things here on the Eastern Conference before we wrap up with some All-Star Weekend talk and a little bit on the MVP race. Um, Milwaukee has to be considered the favorite until proven otherwise. Uh, they have kind of had a weird season up and down, but I can tell you when you watch them play and you watch Giannis, Giannis is absolutely an MVP candidate and should absolutely be considered an MVP candidate. He's right up there with Jokic and Embiid. There's no question about it. Uh, Chris Middleton has taken a step back this year. Um, not super far, but kind of like what young Chris Middleton was. I do think he'll kind of turn things around. And Drew Holiday is just continually being Drew Holiday. The difference with this year's team is I think some of the ancillary pieces are, are where they're hurting, right? Like they're not, you know, whether it's Bobby Portis not really being there in, in the same level. Uh, obviously, no Brooke Lopez is huge. I think Milwaukee, and we saw it in the game, the last game before All-Star break when they played Philly, if they get matched up against a, you know, Joel Embiid or a, one of these dominant big guys, and, and I would say, honestly, he's probably same thing for if they paired up against Brooklyn. It doesn't have to be the dominant big guy, but just where you're deploying your resources – I think Milwaukee could see, have some trouble, but until we see otherwise, I do think the Bucs deserve that benefit of the doubt. And I know they're in the fifth place, but again, they're tied with Cleveland and Philly for third, really. Um, and it's only two and a half games. So fifth might as well be second. 
right? They're 36 and 24. They've had a really good year. And, and I think they're going to continue to get better and, and tune things up because I think Coach Bud, even though he gets heat sometimes, is a really good NBA head coach. Uh, and then the last thing I want to talk about here with the Eastern Conference, I touched on a little bit there, the Boston Celtics. Uh, they've been on a fantastic run. And, and I talk about the Bulls here in a second too, but just the Boston Celtics and the Bulls, um, one started really down. The other one started really up. And credit to the Bulls for pulling out wins. DeMar DeRozan, another guy who's in that fringe MVP conversation. He's not quite in that top three, but he's kind of around that maybe four or five zone. Um, the Chicago Bulls still in second is impressive. I, I'm worried about how long they'll be able to hold this up. Now, Zach Levine supposedly will be back for the rest of the regular season. We'll see, but it's a knee issue. Um, it's probably something that he's going to have to get scoped and cleaned out and do some rehab on, and he's going to be playing through some pain. So I don't know exactly how far the Bulls can go, but you can't discredit what they've done. Um, the Celtics, however, have really turned things around. Defensively, they've been fantastic. They've, you know, they're nine and one in their last 10 games. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, it feels like everybody's, you know, bought in, but it was one of the sneakiest trade deadline deals that ended up maximizing so much of what that roster could do was them going out and getting Derek white, which is just like, Hey, get a proven point guard who can shoot a little bit, but a guy who can run your offense, right? Kemba is not that kind of a, a point guard. He was never going to be able to kind of do that stuff. Gordon Hayward did it a little bit in Boston, but again, that's not his like natural possession. Like they got Evan Fournier last year. Evan Fournier is a scoring guard. He's not a point guard who's coming in to set up your offense. There's, that's becoming a dying art in the NBA as a whole. Getting Derek White in there, just an adult in the room, to be like, all right, Tatum, boom. You know, we're setting Tatum, Brown, running the offense, having that consistency. They were having Marcus Smart as their primary point guard before they traded for Derek White. Like, no wonder the team and, – and look, for Marcus Smart's credit, he actually was playing pretty well. But sustainability-wise – you don't, and for long term, right? You don't want Marcus Smart being your your defense, your number one point guard, your ball distributor, right? You want Marcus Smart doing other things within your offense and putting more of his energy in on the defensive end. So, uh, keep an eye on Boston. Uh, Cleveland's been an awesome story, but they're kind of like Memphis, right? How how do we see this? The rest of this kind of play out. Can they be make a run? Why not? You know, honestly, at this point, the way that talent is dispersed in the NBA and every team is talented. Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, you know, it's a fun team. They're absolutely one of the most fun teams to watch. So keep it locked in on the Eastern conference. Cause that race in these last 24 games or so is going to be incredible. And uh, I cannot, I cannot wait to see how it goes. Uh, last thing here, all-star weekend. Um, shut up about the dunk contest. Just to stop it's a dunk contest every every five years it's the same thing right you have an amazing dunk contest like we had in 2016 2017 was pretty good too and then it slowly deteriorates and then you have one awful year and everyone goes oh my god the dunk contest sucked it's dead it's never you know it's just time after time it's oh my god it's, just, it's the it's the dunk contest okay some years are going to be incredible some years are going to suck and I guarantee you within the next few years, there's going to be another dunk contest that is unreal. This was a down year. So shut up about it. The dunk contest 
gives us unbelievable. I rewatched the 2016 one last night. It's it's legitimately one of the most entertaining sporting events I can ever remember watching live. One of the things that made me fall in love with the NBA was Nate Robinson versus Dwight Howard, Andre Godala versus Jason Richardson. Like, it's not an every year thing. It's an every five year thing. And then you'll get a couple of good ones mixed in between. And then you'll have some complete duds. Now I get it this year with as many guys that were missing was exceptionally bad, but we don't have to spend all this time, but how can we fix the dunk contest? Dunk contest is fine. Some years are going to be amazing. Some years are going to kind of suck, which is why you should never go unless you're going there to go out to the parties and shit afterwards. You should just watch it on TV. It's one of my favorite yearly traditions. The skills contest, I like what they did uh, with that, changing that up a little bit. Shout out to Cat, Carl Anthony Towns. How about him winning the uh, three-point contest? That was cool. Um, but, yeah, let's just chill. And then, Steph, you know, Steph Curry, I, I said it briefly earlier, but fi- at 50 points, 16 threes in the, dunk, or in, the, in the All-Star game. Unbelievable. And then LeBron with a just absolute insane game winner in Cleveland, which was cool. You know, again, for all the LeBron shit, and I know I kind of went in on him today. Uh, I'm, I was I was there for that shot. That shot was sick. That shot was sick. Um, MVP race briefly here. I have it in bead one, Jokic two, three, Giannis. And it's probably a dumb rationalization. But when it's this close and all three guys are this close, the NBA historically has always sided with the new guy. Who's the guy who hasn't won it before? Historically, it's not saying right, wrong, or indifferent. Just saying that's what it's been over the course of the NBA, right? At least in recent history, you give it to the new guy, someone who hasn't won it before. Because that's typically where the narratives go. Oh, my God, Joel Embiid, right? Jokic won it last year. Giannis already has two. Give it to Embiid. If one of these guys takes a drastic step, and I do think there's a really good chance that Embiid's numbers personally slowed down after the All-Star break with James Harden. But if his numbers do drop, then it's anybody's game. Or if Jokic goes to an even higher level, then I have no problem with giving it to Jokic in back-to-back years. But when they're all this close, I tend to lean towards who hasn't won it before. Right. Because how do you even quantify it at this point? Like Jokic and Embiid have identical resumes, even when it comes to their overall team performance. Like, look, the Sixers, 35 and 23 right now. The Nuggets, 33 and 25. It's a two game difference. And you can argue that Embiid actually has had more to work with to this point than Jokic has without having Michael Porter Jr. or uh, Jamal Murray. Both guys deserve it, right? Both guys have been phenomenal. And Giannis could, he has a great argument in it too. All three of them play pretty good defense. I think Embiid and Giannis obviously are a little bit more, I mean, definitely Giannis, but I think Embiid too, a little bit more than Jokic, but not by much. Jokic is a good defender. And the advanced numbers actually say that Jokic is, you know, a better defender than Embiid. And I'm just, you know, some advanced numbers, you know, need to be left advanced and, and, and buried. <laughs> um, but Embiid, I just, I think he's earned it to this point. And there's also a really good chance. Well, not really good. I, there's a chance Embiid, his numbers hard, get hit by Harden. There's a chance that they get even better because of how much it can open up for him. And if Harden it buys into like, Hey, I'm going to help Embiid 
be the best guy on this team, which I, I think he might want to do. I mean, he kind of seemed to be buying to that with Brooklyn again last year. I think that's the hope for Philly fans where it's like, Hey, I'm going to be James Harden, but Hey, you know, I'm, he, he's got to know it's not, it's not his team. It's Embiid's team. If he goes all in on feeding Embiid and then doing his James Harden stuff to supplement some of the non Embiid moments, Embiid could be even better, which is scary. So as of right now, statistics wise, I think it's a tie. So then what's going to decide it? And maybe it's my bias. I don't care. Joel Embiid is my MVP right now. But if either of those, if either of those other two guys won, and if they gave out if they gave out the award right now, I'd be fine with Giannis or Jokic winning over Embiid. As a fan, I'd be bummed. But you know, as a Sixers fan, but as just an NBA fan, I'm cool with either one. Either one, no question. Um, all right, that's all we got. Sorry again for the delay. We'll be back on Friday, hopefully with Scotty and Vito or some combination of the two. Hope everybody has a wonderful week. We'll talk to you guys then. Take it easy. Everybody.